This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, and welcome to a new episode. I'm Catherine Bliss with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, and it's my pleasure today to speak with Dr. Heidi Larson, founding director of the Vaccine Confidence Project and professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, as well as the University of Washington in Seattle. Heidi is also a senior associate with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, and she co-chaired the high-level panel on vaccine confidence, misinformation, and national security back in 2020-2021. Back in March of this year, Heidi joined me for a previous episode. And at that time, we discussed some of the ways in which attitudes about vaccines, particularly the COVID-19 vaccines, were changing as supply in low- and lower-middle-income countries became more plentiful. Now, while many countries around the world have made significant progress in increasing COVID-19 immunization coverage since then, there's a group of 10 to 15 countries that is really still lagging behind. Some of those countries that top the list are on the Fragile States Index and still have COVID-19 coverage well below 30%. And these include Yemen, Somalia, Syria, South Sudan, Central African Republic, Afghanistan, and Chad, among others. And of course, as the WHO UNICEF estimates of national immunization coverage data, July of 2021, really kind of looking back at 2020, there's really been an overall decline in routine immunizations over the course of the pandemic including in many high-population, middle-income countries. Some of the challenges, of course, were associated with the problems low- and middle-income countries faced in arranging purchases of COVID vaccines. And there was also the late arrival of COVID-19 vaccines through COVAX due to production challenges in 2021. And getting the new vaccines out to remote sites and into the arms of adults who don't usually get vaccines has been difficult. But beyond delivery challenges, there are issues around vaccine acceptance, Some people are afraid of the new technologies, that they're unproven, for example. And in fragile and conflict-affected settings, people may not be overly enthusiastic about products promoted by or endorsed by government health officials. So we're here today to talk about the state of vaccine confidence globally, but also why we need to be thinking about confidence and resilience and social cohesion, really, more broadly, beyond vaccines, that is. And so really thinking about society as a whole when it comes to preparing for future pandemics and crises. Heidi, welcome back. It's nice to be here. Thanks, Kath. So we were here in this room talking about seven or eight months ago or so. And at the time, countries had been receiving shipments of COVID-19 vaccine from COVAX and through other purchases that had been arranged. But, you know, we also had seen that the routine immunization data, even from really looking back at 2019, from 2019 to 2020, had already showed a bit of a decline. So I wanted to ask if you could provide an update on what you're seeing in terms of confidence in vaccines now 
as we kind of move into really looking ahead at almost, you know, a third year of this pandemic. What are you seeing in terms of the evolution of vaccine confidence and what trends are you most interested in at this point in time? Thanks. We've been following vaccine confidence, as you know, since 2015, and that's more general with uh, primarily around childhood vaccines, but also looking a bit at HPV and flu. So we had a lot of background data on vaccine confidence. In the context of COVID, we were additionally looking at how much the issues of uptake were access issues and how much were confidence. And I think that when COVID hit, there was a lot of hope in the immunization community that COVID would really, for any of the skeptics, really show the value of vaccine because vaccines were going to get us out of COVID and with a lot of optimism about how it would be a boost to vaccine confidence. Unfortunately, we're really seeing that there's been a negative knock-on effect on confidence more broadly following the two years of the COVID pandemic. Some of that may be a temporary lag. Clearly, there were a lot of access issues for routine immunization during COVID, but that's not the only part of the story. One reason I think we're seeing that is because COVID touched everybody's lives. And people who normally never really thought about vaccines, or if they did, they would say in a nationally representative survey, yeah, sure, vaccines are good. People should have them. They're safe enough. And so I think our nationally representative surveys were looking at the general population that didn't really think a lot about it, but except for parents, that that was clearly a more studied population. But now in the context of COVID, all of a sudden, the whole world not only had to think about it, but really were confronted with whether to take a COVID vaccine. And in some cases, a mandated COVID vaccine. And I think that people went online to be searching about vaccine information, and many were surprised at what they saw because there's a lot of conflictual information out there. There's a lot of mis and disinformation. And I think it provoked a lot of questioning. It brought to a broader public, a lot of questioning. And I think that that's, what do they say, the horses out of the <laughs> out of the barn or how, however the phrase is, that there is this mix of information. I don't think it's unfixable. I think it just means that we have a lot of work to do in rebuilding confidence. I think that we have an opportunity with COVID recovery and trying to catch up on a lot of missed vaccinations that were primarily, I mean, there were a lot of missed vaccinations for access reasons. Either health systems were pretty focused on COVID and this, you know, the resources, human resources and whatever meant that people were not getting their supplies for the routine vaccines or people just weren't encouraged to go to health centers during the peak of COVID. But during the catch-up for that routine vaccination, I think we should see it as an opportunity to start rebuilding confidence again. So I want to ask you about, so that was recently featured or described in the New York Times, which was about Marin County. 
which is north of San Francisco Bay Area, right there in California. And up until a few years ago, Marin County had lower immunization coverage than many other parts of the state. And if you talked with people there, you know, some of the reasons for that were that people were concerned about parents, in particular for their children, were concerned around some of the contents of vaccines. They felt that they were putting artificial ingredients into their children. They were concerned about really preserving this sort of access to, to natural medicines and that kind of thing. But over the past couple of years, it sounds like things have really turned around there. And now the county has among the highest COVID-19 vaccine coverage rates and childhood immunizations have also changed and turned around. It sounds like at least some of the discussion with families there has centered you know, around really looking at the polarization around immunizations in the United States over the past couple of years. So, you know, I just wanted to ask what kind of lessons you take from this turnaround or this apparent, is it really a turnaround? And what does what's happened there, does that suggest anything for what could happen or what may happen in, in other regions? Yeah, I think the Marin County example is a really interesting one. But it does also speak to the fact that during COVID, particularly when people were, I think, discouraged is the right word, by national leadership, turned more and more to their community level. And I think that the fear of the pandemic, particularly at a certain stage, meant that some people came together and said there were people who wanted a vaccine and resented people who didn't get a vaccine. And I think that when it came to a tight community, they wanted to keep their community protected. And it strengthened community in some senses, but it also polarized in a sense. But we also see over time that there has been an emerging other generation, younger parents or about to be parents or not, <laughs> who are resisting, who are starting to self-organize against the anti-sentiment and say, enough. You know, we put up with it for a while, but it's too much. And we want to be more outspoken about wanting vaccination. So it's been an interesting trend. Whether that happens in other settings, I think it will really depend on the cohesion within the community, because you do have groups whose cohesion is defined by the anti-sentiment, but they're not necessarily geographically organized. I mean, that's a more like-minded people that are not necessarily living in the same place. So in some ways, it may have been rejecting a political identity of being against vaccines, but also it sounds like it could have just been that finally there was kind of an opening or an opportunity to kind of come forward and say, you know what, we actually disagree with this larger sentiment. But what you've pointed out too, that in the absence of national discussion or national leadership, the communities became really important. And I think we saw this in so many different areas across the health spectrum that when health officials were absent, people came together to distribute antiretroviral therapies or tuberculosis medications or whatever else to really kind of help each other. And so potentially this question of social cohesion that I want to hear you say a little bit more about and can be a key to facilitating dialogue on these issues. Now, your new project is called the Global Listening Project, and you've described it as building on some of the work that you've done in vaccine confidence, but ensuring that people can be heard, right? And you're also really focusing on helping to build societal cohesion as a key element of preparedness for future crises. So pandemic crises, perhaps, but 
climate change and natural disasters and you know all the the different kinds of perhaps unexpected emergencies that can really kind of shatter us as a society. First, I would ask you, what is societal preparedness when you talk about that? Why is it important? And how are you going about the process of really gathering information about it and, and measuring it? Well, the Global Listening Project is something that I came up with and shared with some colleagues, and we've built it as a project building out of what we saw during already in the vaccine confidence work. We were increasingly thinking about being a confidence project because so many of the things that we saw were driving acceptance or not confidence or not in vaccines was relevant to confidence and cooperation with other health interventions or COVID measures, for instance. Um, If you didn't take a vaccine, you were less likely to wear your mask and less willing to cooperate with some of the other measures. And so much of it has to do, too, with trust in government, trust in the authorities, trust in other dimensions. But it also had, we also saw the polarizing effect. I mean, the World Economic Forum 2022 risk report identified it was nearly 30% decline in social cohesion in the course of the pandemic, 27.8% or something. That's pretty dramatic. That means like a nearly 30% increase in polarization if you look at the other side of the story. And people have asked me, you know, where did you see the successes in the COVID response? And I think it's situations like Marin and and other communities that actually strengthened and came together in the face of COVID, sometimes despite the lack of other support. And we've seen this in different parts of the world. So I think the more we can build on those examples of cohesion and facilitate that. Another thing that's happened is the whole world has been through a pretty traumatic time. And people have have experienced it in a lot of different ways, but everybody has been through something. And one of the ideas with this Global Listening Project is that we want to capture, while it's still alive in the memories of people, what worked for them, what didn't, who did they turn to, who did they trust, who didn't they trust, how can we do better to help support cooperation in future? Because if we don't capture these sentiments, emotions, memories now, they'll dissipate, but people will carry them. So it's as much to capture these insights from communities, from populations about what they went through and how it could be better so that we can use this resource to inform a better societal preparedness moving forward. But also the sheer act of listening, I think, is going to frankly have an important therapeutic value. We need a bit of space to go through a kind of mourning. This has been really health for a lot of people, and it's obviously affected some people more than others, but we're going to need time to get back on our feet. There are some very long COVID impacts, not just physiologically, but the mental health issues. We have a lot of unaddressed health issues, and things have slipped. We see polio coming back, for instance, things that you know, we were really close to getting ahead of, we lost track of. So these are all opportunities to kind of bring people together in a cohesion way. And we'll also have, when we launch the report next spring, about all of our findings globally. I hope that that becomes an important 
resource and and we're building on that also with video interviews and audio and and creating a space for people to contribute to the website listeningproject.global and that that can become an opportunity for people to share those experiences and insights and emotions so i know it's still early days and you're still carrying out some of the interviews and focus groups but you've worked in a number of cities across different parts of the world in the United States, Europe, South America, Asia, and elsewhere. Can you share some of the top two or three maybe common themes that have surprised you coming out of this work? Well, one of the things that is across the different settings, and so this this first round of, of focus groups we've been doing were New York, Paris, Delhi, Bangkok, and then we'll be doing Abuja and Sao Paulo. And then we'll be building out a bit more on top of that. And with all of this six focus groups in each of these settings, we're going to harvest what are some of the common themes and distill an index that will roll out to 65 countries. One of the things we've seen in this formative phase in the focus groups is the volatility of people's emotions and sentiments during COVID. At first, it was a bit of anxiety, maybe a bit of fear. Then it moved into a bit of anger when it started to go on and on. Um, Moments of hope, which were interesting, and moments of insight where, for instance, there's a very moving quote from someone who was in the New Delhi focus group who said, I remember the day when the sky opened and we saw sunlight and it reminded me what a clear day could be. My biggest worry is that we're going to have a future challenge with pollution. And it reminded me how bad our pollution was when we saw that the possibility of a clear sky (laughs) because of COVID and no airplanes and a lot of people were inside. There was the the trends of the different emotion. I think overall, people were pretty frustrated with their governments. They all talked about the power of community and how neighborhoods came together. Some of them said that they wish they could have kept some of that neighborhood coherence and that already it's starting to slip. So that's one of the insights that I think, how can we leverage and keep some of those networks that came together, keep them alive for other things. We saw, I mean, in some cases, people being very generous with their time and, you know, picking up prescriptions and food for people who had compromised immunity or were old and living at home and different kinds of positive sharing. And then also people who were very resentful in the younger populations. There was a lot of anger that they felt like they had to pay the price for what some people felt was an old person's disease, that they lost two years of their life. And others talked about how much expectation there was on technology and how they weren't prepared for that. And they didn't feel like they could do this online schooling so well and that they failed their kids. So those are just some of the initial things, but we're really just unpacking all of this. And in the next couple of months, it'll be, I think, quite an interesting period of, of really digging deeper in, into these various testimonies, really. 
I mean, so you've described this really as a deep listening project and that the act of listening may itself be therapeutic for people just to be able to express their positive or their negative experiences. But, you know, it's one thing to listen to people and to record what they have said or experienced. How will you take those lessons or those themes and translate those for for policymakers who may be not going to a website or, or looking at the testimonials? I mean, it, it sounds fascinating. I mean, just to be able to collect this information and have it in video form and you know, for people around the world to be able to go and look and see, oh, yeah, you know what? I experienced that in my neighborhood in Washington, D.C., but other people in Bangkok experienced the same thing. And we have this shared experience and shared humanity. But as you take those themes and will you be presenting them to public officials or will you be distilling policy recommendations along with the testimonials? I mean, how will you make this information kind of actionable from a preparedness point of view? Yeah, that's an important question. We definitely want to not just let it live in a report or on the, on the website. We see the website as an opportunity for other people to contribute. We'll have spaces where people can add their experiences and we're, we're connecting with as many people as we can who are doing any kind of related work to build out this evidence base, so to speak. But where we do see issues coming up and not just a one-off, but that there is an issue that multiple people have expressed concerns about, we want to convene some roundtables with relevant local officials because maybe it was an issue around schooling or housing or access to something else or people feeling another another bigger concern that they have that we make sure that the relevant groups in the country that that's coming from hear this and will figure out the appropriate way to do that. Some of the themes might be relevant globally and have bigger implications. And for that, we will convene and make recommendations. But but also, it's really to put these voices together in roundtables with people who are policymakers, who do design programs, who are working on other preparedness measures. There's quite a epidemic of pandemic preparedness activities going on, but I think many of them are missing this piece. So I think by bringing the societal perspective into the roundtables where other people are thinking about preparedness, and ours, as, as you mentioned, is not just about pandemic preparedness, but societal cohesion and resilience for whatever comes down the pipeline. And we've had a number of shocks to the system. I'm particularly concerned about the extreme weather and climate change issues. You know, that's another type of shock to the system that needs ways that people can connect and, and get strength. Well, and as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking, too, that Perhaps you're already doing this, but you may need a whole, you know, additional stream of work just listening to the policymakers themselves and yes. the trauma and burnout that that they've experienced during well, this period also. Absolutely important point because I think that in the few policymakers I've talked to about this, they reflected their own emotions and how much they had to manage their own emotions, the various pressures from different sectors. And also, some people felt like science was almost too dominant. Science says, therefore, you do. 
and not taking into account the practical realities of and the implications of some of this. You absolutely need science there, but maybe also somebody from the education sector and somebody from another sector to sit together and say, okay, this is the scientific reality and the, and the projections of what we have to deal with, what is feasible and to what extent and what are the implications of this. It's much easier to think about this in retrospect. And I know it was, we do have to have a lot of empathy for anyone sitting in that hot seat who, you know, it was a constantly changing information environment, um, even in the scientific space. So uh, it is a good point about helping policymakers too, next time, as it were, um, are there ways that they could be more supported? So as you look 10 years into the future, thinking about how this project is getting started and how it may evolve as you gather more information and really move from these five or six kind of focus countries to the 65 or, or more that you'll be gathering surveys and doing interviews in. What do you anticipate will be the key contribution as we, we hope, move beyond COVID and really perhaps get a breather between this crisis and the next one? What is your, your hope that this will really, um, how this will be used for, for moving into the next planning and anticipatory stages? Well, I think after we take this formative research to inform what we're looking at as a societal preparedness index and roll it out in multiple countries, we'll have a baseline. And what we do look forward to doing is, is following it up in a year, in two years, and seeing which situations are recovering better than others, where are the weak spots in the system. So there is a longitudinal piece of this. Um, and the other thing I, in terms of where I see this as a, hopefully as a contribution is to put, to really get out there the importance of listening to people of the society, the, the citizen piece of any preparedness or response work, because so much of it is on governance, on supply, on surveillance, on a lot of system aspects, which are really important, but are missing the human face. And I hope that this can help contribute that human face to a lot of the, the system preparedness work. Well, Heidi Larson, thank you very much for joining me today to discuss not only the Vaccine Confidence Project, but also the Global Listening Project. Good luck to you, and I hope we can talk again to hear how the focus groups are continuing to evolve and, and what you're learning through this important work. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 